Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. What a treat we have for you today, and actually for a couple more weeks as well. Our guest is Jeremy Lent, and he's the author of a just-released book, And calling it just a book does not do it justice because it's monumental and I hope it's a history-changing collection of the widest and deepest thought around. And it's called The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning. Jeremy describes himself as an integrator and you'll learn what that is and also what Leology is and why he founded the Leology Institute a little bit later on in this program. What I can promise you is that, when understood, this is about world-changing knowledge and insights, addressing the greatest crises that we are facing, addressing them at their roots. And because this is so immense and multifaceted, we're going to take three weeks to approach it thoughtfully and fully. We're going to jump in right now as I get Jeremy Lent on the phone over in Berkeley, California. Jeremy, I am really, really, really excited to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. I'm excited to be on the show with you today. Thank you. Before we got on the air, I clarified, you know, I'm speaking to you. You're over in Berkeley, California, and yet your accent is not Berkeley-esque. Could you explain a little bit of your path? Because I think the evolution of your personal thought is inextricably interwoven with how this book, The Patterning Instinct, came along. Yeah, I think that is very true, Mark. Yeah, so in fact, I was born and raised in England. I left England when I was 21. I'm now 57. So I spent most of my adult life in the United States, as well as a few other countries at different times. And somewhere, somehow, my accent managed to get kind of scrambled. So no one can quite place it when they hear me speak. But that's where it comes from. Have you been in California a long time, or is this, I think, regional differences of thought in the United States make a difference, too? You're right about that, and I have been in California for most of this time, since the mid-80s, so it's been about 30 years I've lived, actually, in the Bay Area. So I spent a little bit of time in Chicago. In fact, I got my MBA at the University of Chicago a ways back in my mid-20s. Spent a little bit of time after that in the East Coast, in Washington, D.C., but after that, it's been really three decades here in the California Bay Area, and I agree with you. That has affected, you know, my understanding of things, I think, to some degree. And you mentioned getting an MBA degree, which that just kind of blows my mind a little bit because that is not what I learned about you by reading The Patterning Instinct. Where does MBA fit into Jeremy Lent? (laughs) Yes, what a what a great question. And I've often pondered that myself, you know. When I was growing up in England, I really found myself understanding the world in quite a, a politically radical kind of way. So in fact, when I was a student at Cambridge, 
I ended up squatting with people who had been homeless and really um, took a more radical viewpoint on things. And I was in the same way when I came to the States. And actually, this kind of different path that I ended up taking for a number of years was driven when I was first um, with my first wife and was raising a family. She had had a very alternative background herself had been in the kind of hippie world in the late 60s and 70s. And she'd actually been traveling all over South America, living with indigenous people in Bolivia, Peru, etc. But she really wanted to give her two sons a a sort of a, a solid mainstream education and upbringing in the United States. And we kind of decided together that we would sort of take a detour, if you will, into what we actually called at the time, believe it or not, the belly of the beast, in order to establish some sort of financial sort of support for their upbringing with the understanding that our values didn't necessarily coalesce with that. So it's a strange path that I took. As I look back on it now, I really feel that it was It was something that allowed me to grow in a certain kind of way. It allowed me to understand the world from a different perspective, which I think is helpful now. But it did lead me to go through a very major spiritual crisis, if you will, a while back, which I think was the foundational place in which this journey I'm in right now started from, including this journey of discovery that led to this book, The Patterning Instinct. And do you want to tell us what that event is? You got me sitting on the edge of my seat now. Oh, yes, absolutely. Basically, I found myself in this time in the late 1990s where I'd actually founded an Internet company and taken it public. So, you know, I was right in the middle of this sort of crazed, you know, financial frenzy, if you will. And shortly after that, things kind of started crashing around me. My first wife, who passed away some years back, she became quite sick. And she, it was the beginning of years in which she went into a lot of very, very, very serious health problems and even some borderline dementia kind of issues around all that. And I left the company where I was CEO so I could actually help look after her full time. But I left the company when it was way too early in the company's own life cycle to do that. And within a few years, the company itself had crashed. And there I was looking after my wife, who, as she was going through this lot of psychological and physical decline, was really no longer the person that I'd, I'd had as my kind of soulmate for all these years. And it's as though I felt all the things around me that I built my life around were kind of crashing. And it was this strange feeling that there was a sense of, you could easily get into a sense of despair, if you will, that, you know, you'd built these things around and and they were crashing. But I felt at the same time as I felt those things, a sense of liberation because it was a sense of like, well, I can, you know, I'm still young and I, I can sort of make my life grow into a path that's truly meaningful. But then I started to ask this question, what is meaning for me? I didn't want to take anyone else's word for what was truly meaningful in life. And I realized, well, if I wanted to really go into a path that felt right to me, I needed to ask my own questions and answer my questions myself. And that led me to start kind of peeling the onion of meaning, if you will. Look at some of the received ideas 
that we're told about what it is to be human, what it is to be alive in this world, and where did these come from? And I kept it probing. It was like a, a sort of detective story. Where did this come from? Where did that come from? And that led me to undergo years of my own exploration, both cognitive and also intellectual in terms of reading, but also embodied and experiential in terms of developing practices, whether they were meditation, yoga, traditional Chinese embodied practices, to discover what was truly my own sense of where a path of meaning lay. And um, at some point I realized I was making discoveries that felt very important that I wanted to share with other people in the rest of the world. And I kind of see a lot of my life's work right now to try to share as skillfully as I can some of the discoveries of meaning that I've been fortunate enough to come across. Well, this book clearly caught me, Jeremy. And folks, we are speaking with Jeremy Lent, author of The Patterning Instinct. But Jeremy, you also were the author of Requiem for the Human Soul. Is that post your first wife's death as well? I haven't seen that book at all. Yeah, it's it's interesting. That was my first foray into writing because I did my undergraduate at Cambridge in English literature and saw myself as potentially a writer and then you know, took this detail we've talked about into the business world. And it was actually during a period of time when my first wife was going through her sickness and was spending a lot of time just kind of sleeping and really and needing to be cared for, but really not too cognizant of things, that I found myself with a ton of time on my hands. So, well, let me just kind of explore what the ways in which I was making sense of the world at that point. So I'd already begun the very sort of first steps of this kind of search for meaning, but was a long way away from having really rigorously sort of pursued it. And this book was my own first sort of creative exploration of where did meaning lie? So you can tell from the title, Requiem of the Human Soul, <laughs> there's something going on there. And it's actually a science fiction book. But it's set in a <laughs> I <love> future. It. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, well, see, it, it's set in a future when most humans are genetically enhanced, something like about 150 years from now in, in the future. And those humans that are not enhanced, who are called the primals, are equivalent to really the people who now are the global underclass. Let's say, sort of people who mostly earn, say, less than $2 a day, or in more developed countries like this, people who live in the ghettos and don't have access to normal health care. So, those are the kind of people who got left behind as most of the affluent layers of humanity got to enhance themselves genetically. So, there's with this bifurcation of the species, essentially. So, in this future world, it's not one of these dystopias where, you know, they, the world is absolutely horrendous. In fact, the future world is in many ways a sort of progress of things that we would, a lot of mainstream people might see as positive in the world right now. So these genetically enhanced humans have enhanced themselves to the point where they're much healthier than we are right now. They'll live for, you know, a couple of hundred years. They also have enhanced themselves so that the genes that encourage aggression have been eliminated from their genetic pool because there were so many terrible wars in their history, they decided they, they needed to improve themselves to that point. So these genetically enhanced humans, uh, these dehumans, they have no war, 
um, their lives are healthy. They, they spend a lot of their time um, using virtual reality technologies to explore things. And they see the primals who now live in reservations as this kind of dirty, dangerous uh, group of people who, you know, who haven't reached their level of sophistication. So where the book is set is there's um, an actual a hearing at the United Nations in this future world where there's a plan to make the primals go extinct. But because these dehumans are so civilized, they're not about to, like, kill anyone in some mass genocide. What they're going to do is put out this radioactive isotope that causes these primals to just have one child per generation. So they'll kind of fade away over, over some generations. But meanwhile, there's a primal rights activist group that, that says that these primals need to be kept alive. They shouldn't be made extinct. And the argument they come up with is that somehow as the humans got so genetically enhanced, they lost their soul. And there's something in the primal human with all of their problems and all of their aggression and all of their difficulties that gives them a soul that should not be eliminated from the earth, essentially. And that's the gist of it. And so the actual, a lot of the book is, is almost like the human race as we know it, our primals, are on trial. And you have these prosecutors looking at all the genocides, all the terrible things, all the destruction of nature, the mass extinctions that we primals have caused, saying, like, how could you possibly say there's something worth saving in this, in this group of people? And so it's a little bit of a topsy-turvy morality play, if you will, where it's not absolutely clear. It's all these shades of gray, you know, who's good and who's bad in this world. Oh, now you've given me another book that I need to read. I, I read more than my eyes can handle because of this. And you know, the patterning instinct is such a glorious compendium of thought, philosophy, science, visioning of what the world needs to be. I love the book, folks, and you'll see that clearly as we go through this interview. And we're going to do this for two weeks, folks, because Jeremy Lent has so much to share that he's he's clearly done the work to share something of value with us. So the patterning instinct, I highly recommend it. And if Jeremy's really nice, he'll send me a copy of Requiem for the Human Soul because I, I love science fiction, too. I think it's one of the most fruitful ways to look at human, get, get a little bit distant so we can look at human behavior, thoughts, progress, science, the world. I think it's a really valuable tool. So thanks for telling me about that. But let's get in a little bit to the patterning instinct. You had me from the first paragraph in your intro where you talk about Admiral Sheng's whole armada started in 1405. Could you say what that is it seems to me, in a lot of ways, that the historical comparison you make between that and Columbus is the same kind of question you raised that was raised by Jared Diamond in Guns, Germs, and Steel when he, he talks about why is it you white people have so much cargo. Right. You're asking a parallel question, I think, there. You could have considered, I think, other historical framings than the Armada versus Columbus. Did you pass on some others? Did that just always seem to you the perfect way to kick this off? Well, you know, this one actually seemed iconic to me. It did seem like the absolute, the sort of riddle that captures a core theme of what the book's about, which is, in essence, one of the ways you can sort of make sense of the book and, and, and how it describes history is this notion that 
different cultures shape their own set of values uh, different from other cultures and it's those values that a culture lives by that actually has shaped history and i thought there's nothing that shows that more clearly if we look at the sort of big themes of history the big swings at least for the last couple of millennia what i see it is this big uh, distinction between the civilization that developed in Europe from the ancient Greeks to basically become European civilization and in more recent centuries has become the, the sort of global civilization as a result of conquest for the most part. So there's been this one huge civilization complex and then there's this East Asian civilizational complex mostly focused in China that for most of recorded history has been the most advanced, sophisticated, and powerful civilization of all. And they come from very different fundamental standpoints. And to me, the ways in which history have, you know, have moved, so the, this, in this present day we see this kind of Western domination, you get this iconic moment in the 15th century, which I see as indicative of this core theme of how culture shapes values and values shape history. So as you say, the book kicks off with this description of this incredible armada that, um, yeah, the way his name is pronounced is Admiral Zheng He of China set out to lead in the early 15th century, around like 1420 or so. And his armada contained something like 270 massive ships with about 30,000 people. I mean, so it was this huge, huge array of people. And he basically, he went over two or three decades all over the Indian Ocean to places like Sri Lanka, Arabia, all the way to East Africa. His fleet was so massive that oftentimes when he'd land at a port, he would have more people in his fleet than even lived in the town where he was landing at. People would even view him as gods. And to this day, you can actually see various temples around the Indian Ocean, which are dedicated to this Admiral Zheng He as a god. So if he'd wanted to, he could have sort of done whatever he wanted to these people. And he could have, you know, mined their land for gold and silver, enslaved them, you know, created some massive Chinese empire. He didn't do any of that. Instead, what he did was he would find the, whoever was in charge of some territory and invite them or one of their principal people from their sort of royal family or whatever to come back to China to kowtow in front of the emperor to see what a great lavish empire China had and to establish harmonious trade routes and relationships around the whole of the Indian Ocean. Meanwhile, that same century, of course, Christopher Columbus set off from Portugal with um, just a three dingy little boats. You could have fit 10 of Columbus's boats inside one of Admiral Jones' boats. And they even had to, yeah, they had a problem with a rudder in one of them. They had to stop in Mallorca for repair before they even sort of got going. And then they landed in Hispaniola. And with these three little boats, somehow Columbus was the vanguard of this absolute incredible generations of conquest, exploitation, destruction, and all of the that we know unfolded in history over hundreds of years. And there was a, something in that mindset that led the Europeans to even conquer not just the uh, North and South America, but so much of Africa, 
Southeast Asia, the very places where Admiral Zheng He had had so much power. So the question is, why is that? Why is it that Columbus's three little boats could end up changing the course of history when Admiral Zheng's massive armada, you know, we barely even know about him right now. And so a lot of the book goes into answering that question. I was also wondering if there were other things. I understand gunpowder originated in China. And what we know of that is fireworks came from China. Right. <laughs> Didn't they use it to make weapons right away like the Europeans did? Well, they actually did. And that's what's interesting, because, yeah, I had that impression, too, that maybe they just didn't realize that you could sort of do all these powerful things with it. But they actually did, and they created the first guns and uh, sort of cannons, things like that, fairly early on. But what's interesting is that, once again, the Chinese didn't see power as a means for exploitation. They saw power as a means for keeping a stable political dynamic and sort of keeping harmony among in society. So if they discovered a more powerful way to build their military, to the Chinese, it wasn't like, oh, let's go take that and see who we can destroy and who we can um, enslave. But they really spent, they actually saw it more as this way we'll be able to defend ourselves a little bit more effectively against the Mongol hordes, the, the barbarians, you know, who sort of continually made encroachments into the Chinese empire from the steps. And so they had a very different view of what you do when you discover some way to enhance your military or technical power. And folks, in case you're wondering where this interview with Jeremy Lent is going, we are talking about healing the world, of having a better future. That's where we're headed. But there's a whole lot of structure to understand because we have to understand what makes for meaning, what makes for good or bad or desirable or undesirable. We have to understand that as part of our search. And so tracing how that has evolved around the world is going to be part of that journey. There's even bigger steps in that that we have to take before we can get to the civilizations of the world. One more thing I wanted to ask about China. I understand that what we would call printing evolved there. We all, I think, know of the Gutenberg Press, but I think there was some kind of printing that happened in China first. Why didn't the Chinese, the why didn't the Mao Zedong printing press capture the world? Or was it a similar thing? Or is it very different? I, I'm curious about that because that seems like an important departure in technology as well. Yes, and in fact, really, you could look back at really the Song Dynasty in China at about 1000 AD. So hundreds of years before the Renaissance and before printing sort of got going in Europe. And virtually all of the things that actually later on scientists in Europe viewed as the fundamentals of the scientific revolution, they were all there in China. And so exactly as you mentioned, you had printing, you had things like the compass, the magnetic compass that allowed people to determine true north, which, which was what, one of the reasons why Admiral Zheng could have this massive armada and know where they were going because they, they had the compass working just fine. And so many other things like that. There was a real scientific understanding of the world. And that's why, actually, one of the chapters I look at is why did the capital S-R, the scientific revolution, it was really only one in history, why did that happen 
in Europe in the 17th century and not either in Islamic civilization early on or in China around the time of the Song Dynasty. And I believe that it's because there were certain fundamental elements in the mindset of Western thought that were required for that scientific revolution different from these technical advances. And so, you know, we can go into that a little bit, but a couple of the overall concepts that I'm getting at is one, there was a sense of human separation from nature. Humans as being separate from the natural world and human reason as being this kind of deified, all-important value that Western Europeans had that they'd inherited from the Greeks that you didn't see in other civilizations. And there was this, this notion of conquering nature, arising from the sense of separation and seeing nature as basically a sort of desacralized machine was the sense that, well, humans can actually conquer nature. We can actually use it for our purposes. And these fundamental concepts, these sort of ontological separation, if you will, between humanity and nature was, in my view, part of what was required for the scientific revolution that you didn't see in China, you didn't see in Islamic civilization. And, you know, and the point of that is that, you know, when we're looking at something like that, I think it's too simplistic to either to say it's good or it's bad. You know, a lot of people will glorify that Western way of thinking and say it led to all these great developments. And other people might look at it and say, yes, those separations are what's destroying the world right now. What I try to do in my book is get away from the kind of simplistic judgment one way or the other and try to understand at a deeper level, what is this mindset that has led to the foundations of our modern civilization that has led to so many positive developments in the world and is potentially leading to the utter destruction of so much in nature and potentially our own civilization itself. And we're going to step through as much as we can of what you have in the book, Jeremy, but it's going to take a total of three shows to do even a half-decent job of it. But first, I want to remind our listeners that this is Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production. All repeat with me the website, northernspiritradio.com dot o-r-g with 12 and a half years of guests doing healing helping work for the world of all sorts links to them and loads of other information a place to comment on this and other shows why deprive us of your insights feedback and suggestions folks and there's a donate button which means this full-time work can continue we depend on you because we don't depend on government or corporations. Make sure that we can continue. And even before that, make sure your local community radio station has all that they need because they're absolutely essential to a healthy voice for news and music that just isn't going to get to you any other way. Don't wait. Support your local community radio station and other people-led media and make good things possible. Let's dive back into our discussion with Jeremy Lent as we consider as many facets as we can of the book, The Patterning Instinct, a monumental work, well worth the three sessions that it'll take to look at it. Because I think that the end point is what will equip us to survive. 
and that means global climate change, it means war, it means health of the human species, it means the survival of the human soul. So there's so many things that we're going to go through with the end in mind that we're going to be better equipped for the healing of the world. So with that in mind, tell us about leology. Did you found the word? Does it come from you? And you'll have to explain what it is. Yes, and I did. I I created this word leology. The word leology is a combination of the traditional Chinese word li, which technically means the organizing principles by which everything in the universe connects up. So that word li then is linked with the Western word ology, which essentially means, you know, the study of or investigation of. So the technical translation of the word leology is really like the investigation of the principles of the universe and the ways in which everything connects with everything else. And what leology is, is a, it's a kind of a, a framework, if you will, for a worldview that could in my view, enable humanity to flourish sustainably in the earth um, into the future. And it's a worldview based on integration, meaning that as the very word itself implies, it tries to integrate both traditional wisdom from earlier civilizations with modern science. So it tries to integrate sort of Eastern ideas with Western ideas and integrate mind and body and integrate spiritual meaning with scientific rigor and ultimately looking at the whole world all the different elements of our experience rather than seeing them as separate things which we tend to do in the west but seeing them as all achieving meaning through the ways in which they connect with everything else that happens in the world and within ourselves so it's very much a framework of connection and integration and folks, there is a link to leology.org, and leology is L-I-O-L-O-G-Y, leology.org. There is a link on nordenspiritradio.org, as well as to jeremylent.com, where you can follow more information about Jeremy and his writings. And his study and the change in cognition that we need for the world to flourish on this planet. Let me see, I don't think you ask this question explicitly, but in essence, you ask repeatedly in the beginning of the book, what makes a human a human, and what is the difference between humans that advantage them over other animals? And your answer seems to be the prefrontal cortex, the PFC, though you know, I found an article specifying that it's actually the lateral frontal pole prefrontal cortex, which is implicated. Could you outline what the PFC is and how that compares with what other animals have? Absolutely. And and in fact, I just kind of smiling because you're so correct. It's a really a technical issue, but it's something that is completely right. There's, there's actually a part of the prefrontal cortex that really is only identified in human beings. And it's, the, it's the, that lateral pole that you described, or sometimes known as the anterior, which has people still trying to work out exactly what it does, but that's probably the differentiating quality that humans have in their way of understanding things than other mammals. But to get back to a little bit more to the basics, in general, the prefrontal cortex 
is the most connected part of the brain. And it's a part that virtually all mammals have, but the more cognitively sophisticated mammals, such as primates, have it to a greater degree than other mammals. The prefrontal cortex, it's so fascinating because it connects up with all of the different parts of the brain that do things like sensing and feeling and emotions and spatial awareness and everything like that. But because it's the most connected, it sort of pulls it all together and tries to, and essentially is the core of what I call the patterning instinct, sort of looks at patterns of meaning in the world around us. And every mammal basically makes patterns of meaning. So, you know, even a, a simpler, a cognitively simpler mammal will recognize, oh, that area is dangerous. You know, I got an attack there from a predator some while ago. I'll kind of avoid that if I can. And that's a, a sort of a pattern of meaning that the prefrontal cortex can allow you to develop. But because humans have this more evolutionarily evolved part of the PSC, it sort of led in earlier times for humans to really um, put things together in what's known as sort of cognitive fluidity, sort of put these patterns of meaning together in a way where you get a kind of an emergent understanding of things. And that's what we oftentimes call symbolic consciousness or symbolic awareness. I call it conceptual consciousness in my book to differentiate it from what all animals share, which is a sense of animate consciousness. And that symbolic consciousness, it kind of led humans, even before we evolved modern language, but to sort of begin to look at the world to try to make meaning out of it. And it's led us to, essentially, in earlier times during our hunter-gatherer cultures, to develop what is kind of like a mythic consciousness, sort of looking at the world and make stories out of it and try to understand it using what I've identified as core metaphors. So simple embodied ways of sort of saying, okay, the world is like this, and then all of the meaning that arises from that comes from those kind of core metaphors. So in fact, a large part of the book is to trace what are the core metaphors that humans first evolved to make sense of the world, and how did those core metaphors change as society evolved? So to the extent that we still have core metaphors in our current worldview that we may not be so aware of. We're going to go into a number of those details in just a moment, but I still want to visit some more about the difference between us and animals. And I'm probably a little bit hung up on this because I've been a vegetarian now for 42 years or something like that. Mm. And so I, for you. <laughs> I feel a little bit more connection that way. And I see as lesser the differences that we want to paint between us and animals, you know, the beasts, right? What separates us from the beasts? Some people have claimed that really the major jump in our cognition happened because we have opposable thumbs, which makes tools possible. So that there's steps of consciousness. You just talked about two different kinds of consciousness. Is it possible that having an opposable thumb, like a number of the other primates have, that that is what leads to 
the consciousness, the development of the prefrontal cortex, and the whole evolution. So, you know, Planet of the Apes as a, a story that, you know, the apes, as they are portrayed in that fiction, they develop the same consciousness, ability to talk, communicate, and everything that, that people have. Is it maybe just opposable thumbs that's really the Kickstarter? Well, you know, I really like to look at these kind of complex questions from more like a sort of a systems perspective. And what that means when you look at it from a systems perspective is recognizing that it's not so much one particular thing that is the source of everything else, but there's a sense of how things co-evolve. So, you know, some more sophisticated evolutionary biologists look at this notion of co-evolution of different elements of what makes us human. So, in fact, we see lots of things developing. It's almost like a constellation of unique sort of human developments that happened when a few million years ago we found ourselves in the savanna rather than in the trees and as climate change happened in the Rift Valley in East Africa. And what we see is that it was a more changeable, more variable climate. And for humans to actually survive, or for the um, pre-human hominids to survive in that, in that area, they had to develop a lot of different new ways of being. So one of the things that you see, in fact, maybe the most important thing you see, is that they had to get along better. Rather than be individuals, um, you know, with a, the one sort of macho alpha male ruling the roost, that wasn't going to work in an environment where they had to kind of look out for each other more. Actually, if there's any one unique human quality, I think we can, we can see that differentiates us from other primates, it's actually more our sort of what's called our shared intentionality, our recognition of other people around us also see the world in the way that we do, but also slightly differently so that together we can understand things and work together more meaningfully. Things like empathy and compassion became really strong in the human experience. And the opposable thumb was one of those things that probably co-evolved with that more advanced prefrontal cortex. So if the prefrontal cortex allowed us to think things through, like, oh, if I take this stone and that stone, I can use this to chip that and I can create this piece of wood. And so you can have all these ideas. But those pre-human hominids who had more sophisticated manip ability to manipulate their fingers could actually then actually carry out some of those ideas better than people who didn't. So their fingers would evolve along with the brains. And you'd have things like, and the ability to sort of throw as they, as they develop the ability to use w weapons. You know, humans have a much more powerful and uh, targeted throw than other primates. So all these things kind of worked out together. And, and along with our shared community, the fact that we became more bipedal so we could walk long distances in the savannah also allowed humans, when they actually did find some prey, or found some really good quality food, not to just eat what they wanted for themselves and go back to their shared community, but actually um, hold what they had in their hands and walk back holding food to share with the rest of the community. So what I find so fascinating is you had all these separate things developing together, creating an emergent new experience, like a new way of, of being in the world that led to modern humans. There's uh, one thing that I ran into. Actually, I ran into it through a song written by somebody named Charlie King. They refer to a study 
that was released, I think, in 2004. And it was about what had happened with a troop of baboons in Kenya. Uh, I, I don't know if you've run into this, but it, it seemed to me very indicative of some of the kind of evolutionary things that you're talking about, the evolution of cooperation versus competition. What happened with this troop of baboons was tuberculosis hit them and wiped out mainly the bigger and stronger males. So essentially that got rid of those who were dominating by force and it led to a whole change in culture of the troop of baboons. So they went from competitiveness to cooperation, specifically because tuberculosis wiped out those big guys, right? And their song is, if baboons can work it out, why can't we? You know, <laughs> that, that, yes. that's the whole thing. I love it. Had you run into that? And I think that maybe that happened in human things. You know, Maybe there was a matriarchal stage because the men got all hit by tuberculosis or whatever. I know. I, I, I love that. And in fact, yeah, that story that you're telling is something that was discovered by the biologist Robert Sapolsky, who is an absolutely brilliant, in fact, I'd almost go so far as to say maybe the most brilliant sort of thinker about human biology in today's world. He, he actually just recently wrote a book called Behave, which I strongly recommend to anybody who is is a student of what is of sort of what makes humans humans and what makes us you know essentially what makes us both sort of good and bad and how we actually act it's an absolute brilliant kind of assessment of all the modern findings in modern neurobiology and cognitive science written from a very humane standpoint and he was the one who discovered these baboons that you're describing a few decades back. And what's so fascinating is that when he returned to these baboon communities, decades later, they expected to find that they had just sort of gone back to being baboons again. But lo and behold, they were still basically acted in a completely different way from other baboons because generally baboons are hugely, they, they live a pretty aggressive life. Like the alpha male has this big coterie of females that he's in charge of and all the other males sort of hate the alpha male and they none of them have access to sex and they all want it and there's a ton of stress in the normal baboon life and these baboons had a completely different way of being and the remarkable thing is that it stayed that way and he uses that as an example to show that when people talk about humans and say oh we're just naturally selfish there's nothing we can do you know this is the way we humans are that is just a load of bunk that actually we have it in us to essentially, essentially really truly evolve ourselves in the direction that we can choose to grow into. And that's a source of great hope if we are able to recognize how our own values and our own choices work and how collectively we can actually move in different directions. And there's a lot in history to show that we have done that, that there has, from many valid perspectives, been a serious increase in the sort of moral consciousness of humanity um, overall, in spite of all the horrendous stuff we see going on around us right now. There are real valid viewpoints that we have been evolving ourselves to a higher level of consciousness. I want to bring up one other book I encountered Along the way, I think back in 1980, I read Elaine Morgan's book, The Descent of Woman, 
part of what struck me in that book is she puts out what is kind of an alternate hypothesis for what led to the development of the human species, the Homo sapiens sapiens, and how that all comes along. Most people who've written it say, you know, nature, bloody, and tooth, and claw, and it's the tough guy who survived. And she kind of says, no, what if it's because of the weak members that we evolved in the direction we did? Because women were pregnant for nine months and couldn't run, and so therefore you had to survive in different ways. She she puts out, and it's not original to her, but she develops it considerably, including looking at various human attributes. Why do we have subcutaneous fat? And which other animals have that? And what does this indicate about their evolutionary paths? So she looks at a number of things, and I'm not sure if she's right or wrong in her final conclusions about this, but just as I was mentioning with the baboons, what led to their development in that direction? Was it because of tuberculosis striking them dead? Or, and is that what evolved the people in Europe? Maybe it's because of the plague and the Black Plague and all of that. Or maybe it's because of in 1918, we had the massive flu epidemic in the world where some 3 to 5% of the world's population died off. Maybe disease is what has pushed us evolutionarily as well. Uh, but I particularly am kind of attached to Elaine Morgan's alternate view that maybe this switch from competitive, dominant, hierarchical societies, maybe that comes about because that's actually what is evolutionarily stronger. Could you explain a little bit more about why competition is not the way, since it seems to be the thing today in Washington, right? You know, all that we care about is who beats their chest the loudest, right? Exactly. No, I think this is a really key point. I'm glad you're raising it and going into it. And when we talk about some of these sort of root metaphors or underlying foundations that our modern society is built on, you'll see that again and again that people believe that it's somehow been proven, that, you know, it's just a precept, that like we have this thing called the, the selfish gene, that basically, you know, that's the way evolution works, is through genes being selfish, and humans are fundamentally selfish. In fact, that you'll see that a lot as some kind of philosophical underlying argument for capitalism, that, you know, it's the best way to harness people's selfish energies and in a way that's most efficient, and just that's the way it works better. That is all false, basically, as I discovered through the research that I did to look at the different ways cultures have made sense of things and to look at the, our underlying biology. And I think that with that book you, um, you describe, I think, was really hitting on what's important, that when humans first evolved as pre-humans and some millions of years back, it was our ability to cooperate rather than our selfishness that defined us. If you look at early primates, and, and if you look at modern-day chimpanzees, orangutans, or gorillas, you'll see that same sort of alpha male drive is what, is, is what defines the community dynamics. You'll have an alpha male who kind of gets to own his females, and the other males, all they want is to sort of topple the alpha male so they can be the next alpha male. And so we still have remnants of that in our human genetic makeup. And that is that really primitive sort of ancient kind of drive that you see in people like our current president sitting in the White House and other people who kind of act as if that is the greatest value there is. 
But what actually makes humans different from those other primates is our cooperative nature. So you see more of a focus on sense of altruism, a sense of fair play. And these are the things that are really defining humanity because those are what allowed us to actually work together to survive in the more variable and challenging environment of, of the savannah and then using that, those community skills to sort of develop this ability to ultimately, you know, create tools and have that patterning instinct and then sort of, you know, essentially take over so much of the rest of the world. So I think that is so important because once we recognize that what actually is defining for humanity is our cooperativeness and our sense of fairness, and our sense of um, essentially a deep drive towards egalitarian modes of, be- of being together, then it gives a certain underlying, it gives a completely different set of sort of principles that you can found a set of ethics and values on rather than the one that modern day capitalism is based on. Wow, there's so many ideas that we're exploring here today with Jeremy Lent. Again, the purpose, as it always is for Spirit in Action, uh, Northern Spirit Radio programs in general, is what's going to heal the world. And in his book, The Patterning Instinct, he's leading us through all the structures, which I think will get us to a better world. And I'm so thankful you for you writing the book, Jeremy. I want to hit a couple other objections or side thoughts and again these come out of my being vegetarian and i think maybe feeling more connected to animals than most humans are so i've got some follow-up questions related to that but sadly enough my questions and further discussion with jeremy lent about the body of thought in his book the patterning instinct will have to wait till next week we'll have two more hours of digging into this integration thinking you can do some homework in between by getting his book or by checking out his websites there's jeremylent.com and also leology.org but as you always know these links are on northernspiritradio.org the world is in drastic need of course correction, and some would say reversal, and these are exactly the kind of ideas we need to harness to make that change possible. So we'll continue next week. But before we sign off today, I'd like to play for you the song I mentioned earlier about the baboons that evolved a new, peaceful, and better way of being. The song written and performed by Charlie King and Karen Brando. So ponder the deep things we're discussing with Jeremy Lent while enjoying the song, and then we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. Here it is, If Baboons Can Work It Out. Are you ready for a better way to be? There's an answer swinging in our family tree. Everybody lives more fully when there isn't any bullying. If baboons can work it out, then so can we. Now this is a true story. Baboon troops are known for being violent, hierarchical, and male-dominated. So when a tragedy wiped out the most aggressive males in one baboon troop, the survivors generated a new, more peaceful culture. That happened 20 years ago. All the original members of the troop have died off, but they taught this cooperative behavior to their young and to new males who migrated into the troop. So they've created a new way of life, and we figured that if baboons could do that... Are you ready for a better way to do 
Are you ready for a better way to be? There's an answer swinging. There's an answer swinging in our family Everybody tree. Lives. Everybody lives more fully when there isn't any bully. If Babu can work it out, then so can we. Act one, a culinary bungle in the wilds of Kenya. A tourist camp there in the jungle serves a toxic menu. They throw their garbage in a heap. The alpha baboon males compete. The prize they win is poison meat. They die like alpha men do. Are you ready? Are you ready for a better way to be? There's an answer. There's an answer swinging in our family Everybody, everybody lives more fully When there isn't any bully If baboons can work it out, then so can we Act two, the female ratio doubles in the ape assembly Surviving males who want no trouble Take their places humbly Instead of dominance and subjection, mutual grooming, group affection, it's the natural selection for this baboon family. Are you ready? Are you ready for a better way to be? Here's an answer. There's an answer swinging in our family tree. Everybody lives more fully when there isn't any bully if baboon. Now twenty years have passed, they're still cooperating. New males arrive, they're learning fast. No fighting, we're all dating. Stress is lower, hearts are stronger, loving more and living longer. Hop in line and join the conga, time for celebrating. Now a human bully's harder to defeat. Just send the White House poison meat. But, but you can march, sign a petition, organize a coalition. Hey, hey, ho, ho, we say Rumsfeld's got to go. Cause everybody lives more fully when there isn't any bully. If baboons can work it out, then so can. Bush and Cheney? What a quandary. Better put your trust in Gandhi. Baboons can work it out and so can. Papa's eaten all that spinach. Aw, oh, he should have voted for Goosinage. Baboons can work it out and so can him and her. And you and me as smart as any chimpanzee. Baboons, Baboons can work it out and so can we? The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh, 